Amen. So we start a new series tonight. Uh, we'll spend eight weeks going through Second Peter, and we are calling this Remember. And so there'll be eight distinct things that uh, Peter will call us to remember uh, in this second letter. Uh, and I'm just going to do the best I can to not call Peter Paul because that's very hard for me because I've spent the last gazillion hours of my life in Philippians. And so um, I call everybody Paul. So I'm going to do, I mean, you know, I've asked the Lord multiple times uh, this week, why did his name have to start with a P? Couldn't he have been Sam? That would have been so much easier. Uh, so we're going to look at the words of Peter in his second letter. All right. So in an insecure world, get your handouts there. Covered with insecure churches, filled with insecure Christians, led by insecure pastors. This is the spiritual climate, as I see it, in the world today, and particularly in our uh, immediate culture. Now, if I were to tell you uh, a story, let's suppose that you were... Um, in a situation, uh, maybe uh, some critical situation where a person came uh, running to you in a crisis, they were their life. It was a life and death situation. Um, the last time this happened to me, it was a uh, a situation with a diabetic in need of insulin who was going into diabetic shock. And so let's suppose that this person came to you and they needed insulin and you knew where insulin, the exact insulin that they needed could be found. You knew exactly where it was. You knew that it was there. Okay? You were 100% sure. And so the person comes to you, maybe they're almost unconscious and they're, maybe their spouse is with them and they come to you and they need this insulin. Now, in this moment... Everything hinges on your ability to explain to these people where this insulin can be found. And understand something, that the, the, the fact that there is insulin, the fact that it is available, and the fact that it is attainable is all useless information unless you have the ability and capacity to explain to that person exactly how to get to where the insulin is located. Right? That's a great way to understand the crisis that we're in right now. Because in this world, our great need is direction for clear truth according to real knowledge that will guide us to the destination we so desperately need. What good is it that God is real, that God is alive, that God is willing, and that God is able? What good is that if the people that you meet that are in a life or death situation if you're not able to clearly and succinctly explain to them how to find Him. How to get to Him. If you can't do that, don't you see that, that the fact that it's real and exists is pointless. It's pointless. We have to be able to explain to people in a way in which they can accomplish the task. We've got to be able to direct them to where they need to go. And so if you, if, if you think that, that, that all of these, uh, you know, I mean, 
the fact that we live in a ridiculous world, but what's, what's horrible about it is that the, the ridiculous world is filled with ridiculous churches that are filled with ridiculous Christians that are led by ridiculous pastors. And they're consumed with all of these other things other than the truth. And it's not a joke or a game, or it's not, it's because people are dying and going to hell. And there's only one antidote to the problem. And if we have people that are masquerading as purveyors of this solution, but are unable to give clarity to it, it's a crisis. And the crisis, you see, the crisis that exists outside the church exists outside the church because of the crisis inside the church. You do understand that, right? Because if the church were rightly equipped and unleashed on the world, there wouldn't be a crisis out there. I mean, let's just own that. So let me, let me lay out the trap, not out there, but the trap in here. And, and there's a thousand traps, but let me lay out the sequence of traps that most commonly plagues. And even, even in these four walls, if we're not careful. So trap one is Phariseeism. Phariseeism. Now, I want you to think about this with me. I want you to think about how the Pharisees, they, they came to Jesus with questions. They came to Jesus with questions like, uh, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Jesus then tells them the parable of a good Samaritan. Well, your neighbor is a Samaritan. They're like, oh, wait a second. Or they come to Jesus, well, uh, what circumstances, under what circumstances did Moses allow people to get a divorce? They wanted to know that. And Jesus responded, no, it wasn't circumstances, but hardness of heart. Or what constitutes work on the Sabbath? And Jesus responded, well, I do good on the Sabbath. What do you do on the Sabbath? Now, I want you to think about this. Now, the Pharisees didn't read the Scripture to look for a Savior, they were consumed with the Scripture looking for a system. All of these questions that they're asking, they weren't just asking the questions to ask the questions. Think about it. There were multitudes of people who weren't asking Jesus any questions. Just like today. They're just out there in the wilderness. They don't care. They're not asking questions. Think of how many people you work with or live in your neighborhood or you cross paths with. They're not, they're not searching for God or asking questions about God. These people were. They, they were taking the time to think about this and come to Jesus and ask him these questions. And so there's a godly impulse behind their looking. See, they're looking for a system, but there's a, they're, there's a godly impulse behind it. Why do they want to know the answers to these questions? Why were they asking Jesus these questions? Why are they even interested in the system at all? Because a Pharisee wants to, wants to reduce religion down to a system so that they can be successful in it. But understand, there is a godly motivation to wanting to be successful in it because there's a lot of people that could give a rip about the whole thing. Right? Okay. Remember, I'm talking about in the church, not out of the church. So this godly impulse, see, if there's no desire to obey God, they wouldn't have ever asked the questions. See, they want a system by which they can obey God. So there is a spiritual component to being a Pharisee, for sure. So the question, then, 
is. Well, how do you tell the difference between a desire to be more holy and a desire to be a better Pharisee? Because no one's in a church, no one's a part of the crisis without a spiritual component. Because if there wasn't a spiritual component, you wouldn't be in the church in the, in the first place, would you? No. So how do you tell the difference? I mean, how do you know tonight if you're a, a Pharisee or not? I mean, obviously you don't think you are, but how do you know that? How do you tell the difference? It's a trap. You see, Jeff Foxworthy would say, you might be a Pharisee if... And then he would, well, he wouldn't, but I would give you these two things to consider. The first one is, if your position in God depends on your performance for God. Think of how many people are in church right now on a Wednesday night. Who have bought into this system. This system whereby their justification is dependent upon their performance. You know, the, this whole idea that some of you in here tonight, it's highly likely that you struggle at times. You feel close to God and accepted by God when you're doing good and you feel far from God and rejected by God when you're doing bad. And you ease into this sort of belief structure whereby God loves you more when you do good. And He loves you less when you don't do so good. That's a Pharisee. Number two, if you're more concerned with managing the sins of others than your own. You see, one of the ways that we make ourselves look very spiritual is by patrolling the morality of the people around us. We sort of self-appoint ourselves as the morality police. And we dress it up by saying that, well... I mean, I'm just examining the fruit that I see. But are you? Are we? See, it's not that it's, the problem is not that we're concerned about the sin in other people's lives. The problem is that we're overlooking the plank that is in ours. You understand? That's the problem. You see, the Pharisees were very concerned about what everyone else was doing, which would, would have been fine and great had they been concerned about what they were doing first. You understand? So, you might be a Pharisee if you fall into these two arenas. Now, the second trap is religious pretense which needs very little explanation because it's so common and so simple for you to understand and so easy for you to identify with that it will take five seconds for me to unpack it. You see, what happens is when you, you get into a religious system, religious community, everyone seems to be doing so good. Amazingly, all of these people that live in this broken, chaotic world, that the brokenness and the chaos of the world broke them, drove them to Christ, then they come into the community of Christ, and miraculously, everyone's doing phenomenal. We're all doing great. 
When was the last time that you, you uh, went to community group and somebody just broke down and started spilling out their guts about the terrible things that they're struggling with and their need for help? Or is it really a lot of, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm struggling, but it's just vague junk. Yeah, I've had a bad week, blah, blah, blah. I mean, everyone's doing great. It's religious pretense, you know. And here's the thing. Why is that? Because as soon as you come into a room, whatever the, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a, a water line. There's a tide, a spiritual tide in that room. It's low or it's high or it's medium or wherever it is. And that's going to determine the safety. And so if everyone in that room is doing okay, then you know what you're going to do? You're going to do okay. Because that's telling you it's not safe to not do okay. You don't want to be the only one in the room not doing okay. And let's face it. If you do suddenly begin to become transparent about the fact that you're not doing okay, the people who have been trapped in Phariseeism to some degree, the truth is, is you know, they don't really don't want to get all messy. What they really want to do is just come in here and just enjoy each other's company for a while, and then let's just get on with lunch. Well, you know what I mean? We don't, we don't want to get into all your grimy, dirty, nasty stuff. It's just pretense. And here's what happens. What happens is we become more concerned with guarding our reputation than allowing our character to be shaped by walking in honesty and transparency. See, the fact of the matter is, is that this letter is really going to pierce into the, this issue. Because Peter understands what it's like to fail and to fail miserably. And he also understands how God used the failures in his life to make him who he is. And he's not trying to pretend that those things never happened. He's not trying to go, well, you know, that was the old, but, you know, I'm, everything's good, you know. This pretense. And you know what? It's exhausting. What is more burdensome than being ripped to shreds on the inside and pretending that everything's just okay? Nothing will wear you out more than that. Nothing is more uh, burdensome than trying to pretend to be something that you're not. Which leads to the third trap, which is defeated rebellion. You're just done. You're done. Now, do you think that we're in here tonight? Do you think that everybody in this room, what, do you think that there's nobody in this room right now that is engaged in an ongoing, continual, repetitive behavior you know is wrong, you know is a sin, you know is an affront to a holy God, and yet you do it anyway. And you'd be shocked. See, your minds immediately go to all these. But you know what? Some of you in here, it's just your mouth. You run your mouth and gossip about people. And it's no different than the pornography that you were just thinking about. It's the same thing. 
And you know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. Why? Why do you do that? It's defeated rebellion. You see, you reach the point where compromise and God's instructions, well, here's the thing. You just give up trying to keep them. You just forget about it. I mean, well, you're defeated. I've tried, I can't, I've tried, I can't, this or that or whatever, you know, whatever the, the merry-go-round is. Round and round it goes. And this is exactly how it goes. Somewhere along the line, see, there was a time when this wasn't a part of your life. Or there was a time where you had victory over it, whatever the case may be. And so this broken world broke you, brought you to Christ for healing. Then you entered into this culture where Phariseeism is always trying to weave its ugly fingers into, which then creates this pretense, which then makes it an unsafe arena for you to, which it's not anybody else's fault but your own. I'm just simply saying how it all just sort of grows out of control like some crazy deadly mold or something. See, what happens is you, you start asking sin's original question. You, you, you were trying to fight this thing, and then you just said, you know, did, well, what, did God say that? Did God really say that? It's the same question from Eden. I mean, it's, Like, when does it become gossip? So it's okay to, you know, so if, if, it's, if I just frame it in a positive context, then it's not gossip. If I'm watching it on regular television, then it's not pornography. We're just trying to manipulate our way around the situation did God really say, and this is what, this is exactly how this happened. Exactly. That after you started asking that question, then you start surrounding yourselves with people who are asking the same question. See, whoever's asking that question is going to find the other people that are asking that question every single time. Sin has radar. And you'll find all your co-strugglers. And they don't even have to be asking the question about the same thing as long as they're asking the question. And you use it to justify your behavior. You use it to justify going after what you want because your flesh wants something and you want to find people that are going to be okay with what you want. And you don't want to be around people who aren't going to be okay with what you want. I've never met a gossiper that didn't hang around the other gossipers. See, once I figure out that you run your mouth, the way I know who all the other ones are is I just watch who you run your mouth to. It gives it right away. See, we don't really need people saying to us, did God really say? That's not what we need. Because here's what happens. When you start saying, did God really say that? It's all these gray areas. You know, it's like, see, if I'm having a conversation with you or you're having a conversation with yourself, and this is how it goes. If in that conversation, in your mind, you're asking the question, is this wrong? You're already drowning. You're drowning. What you should be asking is, is this wise? 
Is this wise? See, because if wrong is there, if I'm here and wrong is there, when you're asking the question, is this wrong, what you're trying to do is go here. That's what you want to do. As long as you avoid there, you're okay. But the fool neglects the fact that the only way to get from here to there is to step here. So the last thing a wise person is going to do is step here. Hello? You know exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly how it goes. So what we don't need is a, is a gallery of people saying, did God really say? What we need is a gallery of people saying, this is what God said. But here's the problem. If we have a crisis, how many people do you know that actually know what God said? How many people do you have in your life that prioritize what God said? Because you can't just know what God said. There's a cost associated with knowing that. You have to invest in that. And your Bible sitting in your car all week collecting dust. You ever wondered, like, you want to read it, but you don't. Isn't that weird? Isn't it strange that you, you want the Oreos and you eat them? You want to read your Bible, but you don't. So many things in your life that you want to do, you do. But not that Bible. It's, it eludes you. Could it be that you really don't want to know? You really don't want to know. Because you know enough to know that what it says you don't want to hear. And this is the progression of the trap see defeat comes from because you wonder like how did I get so defeated how did I get so stuck in this trap well it comes from exhaustion due to religious pretending and rule obsession you see all you had to do to get in blatant rebellion was was Come to a broken place in your life. Cast yourself on Jesus for help. And then enter into an ecosystem that has threads of Phariseeism in it. That's just going to lure you off where you don't need to go. See, have you ever considered that that community group that you're in where everybody's okay or your D group that you're in where everybody's okay, have you ever considered how dangerous that is? You, you, you realize the fire that you're playing with? And if you're sitting here tonight and right now your heart is just dying because you know that you're in open rebellion. You know how you got there? By sitting in that community group acting like everything was okay. That's how you got there. That's the, and that's how you're going to stay there. See, Peter... It's going to remind us that we don't need to give in to the futility or the pretending or the behavior modification.
Because we actually have everything we need for life and godliness. See, 2 Peter is a, is a, a place in God's Word that is written to a people in a predicament just like we are. They're struggling. Man, they came to, they came to faith in Christ. God's done some great things in them. But the world has started encroaching in on them, and things are getting crazy, and they're struggling to, to sort of hold their bearings. They got false teachers infiltrating them. They got false doctrines infiltrating them, and then they're, they're starting to, you know, ebb back and forth with the waves. And there's confusion. And you've got to be discerning and understanding because you know what? When you, when, if, if, you, if you hit the panic button in a group of Christians today, somebody's going to jump up and say, Here, here's what you need to do. Here's what we need to do. And you know who that person is nine out of ten times? The biggest Pharisee in the room. Be careful. What are they telling you you ought to do? What's the solution to the problem? More behavior modification? Think about, we just spent months on inside out. Did we not? So, me and Pastor Matt ought not have to spend much time talking about behavior modification, but it's so prevalent. Just pretend that you're okay. And everything's going to be fine. When in reality, it's only going to get worse. The message that Peter wants to give us is, you can change. You don't have to stay where you are. And not only can you change, but you can take people with you. You can become a person who is a purveyor of direction for people who are lost. People who are spiritually lost and Christians who are spiritually lost. They're not lost in the sense that they're going to hell, but they're lost in the sense that they're off the track of biblical sanctification. And you can, you can help both, both sets of people because you know exactly how to get to the house where the insulin is. You know the road it's on. You know the address. You know how many blocks to go, what, how many red lights to go through, stop signs, so on and so forth. And you can explain to them exactly how to get from where they are to the medicine they need to save them. You can do that. There's things you can set your mind on and your heart on that are going to bring change about in your life. See, Peter is, is going to lead us through these different things that we're going to remember. Now, I want you to understand, this is a, an elderly apostle at the end of his life. He's, he's going to tell us he's not sure how long. He's, he's old. And so he's, you know, he's imprisoned probably in Rome at this time. And he's, you know, these are words you, you, you got to lean into. This is somebody who is... is is at the tail end of all these things that he's been through and all these experiences and all these things that he's learned. And he's saying, hey, let me explain to you how to get to that house, to get to that location. Let me give you direction so that you can not only take my direction, but you can give that direction to others. False teachers have come in to the church and they're, they're perverting the gospel. 
They're not rejecting Christ. They're not rejecting salvation. No. They're simply saying that whatever you do in the flesh is okay because the Spirit's saved. And so as long as you're saved, your Spirit's saved, you're going to heaven, so the flesh doesn't matter, and you can do whatever you want in the flesh. It's the heresy of today. I'm telling you, it is the heresy of the moment. They're denying the physical return of Jesus and the, because you have to. Why? Because that way you can deny the subsequent judgment that follows. Because if you're going to say, well, you can do whatever you want in the flesh, then Jesus clearly isn't coming back in the flesh, and then judgment's going to happen for all. Well, clearly we can't have that. No. Because then nobody, nobody's going to buy in. So basically to understand it is they're denying justification. They're denying the fact that you're continually being molded and shaped and growing in a process to be more and more Christ-like. They're denying that that exists. They're denying that you should invest time and energy in that, which we'll get into next week. But what Peter's going to do is he's going to combat the false teaching by urging us to remember what we know to be true. Now, that sounds very simplistic. So let's make sure that we understand what we're talking about. You see, the purpose of remembering is not to know, but to practice what you know. You see, what God wants you to understand in the study of 2 Peter is it's the Christian life is not about knowing. The Christian life is about growing. Now, you can't grow if you don't know. But you can know and not grow. And so you have to... See, you can know that the house exists. And there's all these degrees of knowing. Think about it. Some, some of you could say, well, I mean, yes, there's, I, know, I know where the medicine is. I know where the house is. I know the neighborhood. I know the street it's on. But I don't know exactly which house it is. So that's better than not knowing anything at all. But it's not, it's, it's not sufficient enough information to get them right there. Maybe they start knocking on all the houses on that road. Maybe they get to the house they need before they die, or maybe they don't. I don't know. But you need to know exactly where it is you're going and how you're getting there and how you're going to explain that to other people. Because guess what? Sanctification, newsflash, it's like we're like broken records around here. Is a community project. And so if the community that you're in is not authentic, genuine community, then it's not really community. And then you're not going to experience sanctification. No one's being sanctified when everybody's just okay. Not because everybody's okay, but because everybody's lying. The problem's not in being okay. The problem's lying about it. We're not all okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. Peter's goal is that we would grow. And we're going to grow in grace. So he starts... In the ESV, he uses the Hebrew spelling of Simon. So he says Simeon or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. So this growth in grace. Now, grace doesn't just get you in. 
But grace grows you once you're in and keeps you because you are in. See, this is the thing about salvation. Is that salvation comes by grace, but then it doesn't end. You, the whole point is to keep growing in this grace that brought you in, then grows you when you are in, and keeps you because you're in. It's all grace. Now notice how he introduced himself. I wonder if you were, if you were Peter and you were writing a letter, how would you introduce yourself? This is how I would do it. I would say, Peter, the person who completely blew it multiple times, who rejected God to his face, who went back to fishing, not believing that God was going to rise from the dead, even after he told me multiple times that he would. Peter, the only person in the Bible Jesus ever called Satan, is writing you this letter, so you probably don't want to pay much attention to what I'm about to say. I'm the last person you want to listen to. Isn't that how we would start it? And yet... Peter says he's an apostle and a servant. That word servant is just there to protect us from our cultural biases. It's the word doulos, and many of you know it means slave. Slave. We don't translate as slave because we identify with American or Western slavery, which totally misses the whole point. But that's the word. Now, how can you be an apostle? Who, who, who are the people today that call themselves apostles? People who want you to respect them and bow down to them. And, you know, they're very, they're above you. They're apostles so-and-so, which is hilarious. And then who, nobody's running around calling themselves a slave. Now, how can you be an apostle and a slave at the same time? How is that possible? How do you do that? How do you identify yourself as, on one hand, I'm in this elite category. And on the other hand, I'm in this category that nobody wants. Nobody's embracing. And it's all because he understands that we've all obtained an equal standing before God by the righteousness of Christ. See, he, he says to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Don't you see what he's saying here? This whole thing is predicated on the practice of him knowing the things that he knows. That he has grown through his struggles and his transparency. Unfortunately for him, unlike you and me, his is sort of recorded for the whole world to know and see for all of eternity. Whereas me and you can just keep it quiet. I don't have your book to go through and go, oh, well, look at there. But nonetheless, the same God who loves him loves you and loves me and sees it all. So see, he realizes that we're all of equal standing. So what happens here is that we're growing in grace. So grace informs our identity, and then our identity empowers growth. That's how we grow in grace. See, his identity is as an apostle and a slave at the same time. And he's not holding himself above anybody. He's saying it's of equal to ours. He's, listen, he's talking to struggling people. He's not talking to people who got it together. He's not writing this to, this is from one apostle to all the other apostles. No. He's, he's writing to regular people who are getting their butt kicked. Who need a wake-up call. You see, if you're a Christian, 
You're not defined by you. You're defined by something that was done for you. And guess what? If you're a Christian, then what defines you is the same thing that defines every other Christian. Nothing more and nothing less. So you're not inferior to anyone. And you're not superior to anyone. You're defined by what was done for you. And it was equally done. You see, every child in the family of God has the same defining action applied to their life. What defines every child is equal. Regardless of what preceded their adoption, regardless of what is currently a part of their adopted life, and regardless of what lies ahead. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So what he's saying here is that, remember, we're growing in grace, which you know, we'll, we'll totally miss and confuse if we don't pay close attention. Then look, this grace and this peace are going to be multiplied to us in the knowledge, but multiplied is an action word. In the application of the knowledge, in the, in the practice of the knowledge. It's not in the knowledge in a vacuum. It's in the knowledge lived out in an authentic, genuine, transparent community. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His glory and excellence. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 is one of the most quoted verses from this pulpit. We say this all the time. So this knowledge that we practice multiplies grace and multiplies peace. And who doesn't want that? The more you know Jesus, the more you'll be like him. Well, that's simple. Logic. Not the more you know about Jesus. The more you know Jesus. And there's the difference. See, a lot of you know a lot of things about me, but you don't know me. And I may know things about you, but I don't know you. I'm not talking about knowledge about. I'm talking about knowing. See, if you want to be more like Jesus, you should focus less on being more like Jesus. Uh-huh. I meant to say that. Let's just let it linger for a second. And focus more on being with him. You see, your pursuit to be like him is an act of futility. Because the only way to be like him is to be with him. You can't go around with him and become like him. It does not work that way. That's what Pharisees do. See, many people in the church want to be like Jesus. That's why they come to church. 
But the puzzling thing is that they're not willing to spend the time and effort to be with him. You see? See, think about this. I'm just, I love you. I'm just trying to have a transparent conversation. I'm sorry that it's making you uncomfortable because it clearly is based on the looks in the room. But isn't it fascinating that you want to read your Bible, yet you don't. But you come to church. Hmm. You see, you do what people see. You neglect what people don't see. So you can come to church to look like Jesus. But nothing's going to happen until you start spending time with Him. What a good God we serve. You see, I wanted to get you to, you know, I wanted to get you down here. So, because this is good and healthy. So then we can rightly come back up to here. Let's remember Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, well, here's what I know. That I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing. Not knowing about Jesus, knowing Him. You see? That it's so good to know Him that everything else is just forget about it. Right? But now think about this. How good is God that God comes along and says, Now I want you to be like my son and... I've given you everything you need to be like my son. You see, that's what it means to be given everything that pertains to life and godliness. Is that this command to be like Jesus that ought to set us back. And then God comes right alongside of that and says, now I'm going to give you everything you need to be just like him. I'm going to give you everything you need. All that you need. It's going to be supplied for you. All you have to do is, I'm trying not to get on next week. Look at verse 4. By which he has granted us, so we've been given all these things that pertain to life and godliness, and by which has been granted to us his precious promises and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See? So look, if you, if you came in here tonight and you are in blatant rebellion, the good news is you don't have to stay there. You can change. And you know what's not going to be helpful for you? It's to feel like scum. Like the only scum in the room. You're the only scum. The rest of us are amazing. You're the only scumbag in the room. That's not going to be helpful. Because A, that's not true. B, it's not helpful even if it were true. It's not helpful. What's helpful is what you need is you need to be reminded and you need to have people around you that know where that house is. They can take you to the house. They know where the medicine is. That's what you need. Because it exists and it's in that house. And guess what? You walk in the door and boom, they give it to you. But if you're wandering around in circles... Well, I don't know. I think it might be over here. I heard it was in this neighborhood. I, it's over there. It's over, and then guess what? See, you play, when you start playing loose with direction, you're in trouble. 
It's not a game. It's not a joke. It's life or death. See, he's writing to these struggling people. He's writing to me and you, and he's saying, hey, this isn't in the future. I'm not saying, hey, one day Jesus is going to come back and make everything right. I'm saying that's going to happen, but in the meantime, you got everything you need to flourish beyond your wildest imagination. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying. He's saying to grow in grace is going to require God's power. You can't do it without God's power. Lost, a lost person, an unconverted person cannot grow one inch in grace. Impossible. Cannot do it. It can only be done in the power of God. But we need to remember the power has been given to us at salvation. All the power has been given to us. All of it. Every single thing that pertains to life and godliness. Now let me ask you a question. Do you need any power for life and godliness in heaven? Negative. You don't need any. There's no temptation there. There's no capacity there. There's no... That can only be talking about now. Today, right now. We need that power now. We've been given that power for now. For now. For right now. And so, so maybe you've neglected it for the last week, month, year, decade. Fine. But plug in now. Don't you see Stop letting what you've done define you. And let what's been done for you define you. The reason you can't get out of the way of the shadow of your past is because you got this twisted idea. You're, you're twisted. You're in this legalistic pretense nonsense. You cannot be in Christ and be who you used to be. You ever feel like God's against you? You know, like He's Like he's working against you. Like he's purposely putting these stumbling blocks in front of you. I know you feel like this. A lot of you do. You feel like God's just, he's just making it difficult for you. Putting temptation in front of you. Testing you, and when you fail... Then he brings the hammer down on you. And that's how you live. What a sad, pathetic life that is. Because it's a complete and total lie. It's a complete lie. Again, back to Philippians, to what God's already been showing us. Paul is totally certain about the fact that he who began the good work, you see, the initiator of this work of sanctification is absolutely, totally devoted to bringing it to completion. Don't, don't you see what this means is that God is committed he is 100% he is invested by the blood of His Son in your sanctification. So the very idea that somehow God's working against you, you see how ridiculous that is? How blasphemous that position is to take against the holy God that slaughtered His holy Son on your behalf? 
He is, I don't even have a vocabulary. There's, I, I do not own adjectives to express the degree to which God is invested and determined and committed to your sanctification. All you have to do is participate. It's a crisis. I'm telling you, it's a crisis. Please stop. Stop. Can we stop? The endless conversations about what a crisis it is out there and own the reality that it's because of the crisis in here. Let's start having conversations about the crisis in here. Let's start having conversations about the crisis in you and in me and in our community groups and in our D groups and in all these other things. Let's talk about that crisis. That's what Peter wants to talk about because that's where the solution is. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he flipped the table and he said, you are the light of the world. You. You. You and me, we are the light of the world. So if the world is dark, whose fault is that? Sounds to me like we got a light problem. We don't have a dark problem. We got a light problem. See, the mark of sonship. Is divine power. See, the, the way you know that you're saved is by divine power because every saved person has divine power. So you just follow the thinking. And the mark of power is godliness. You see, if you're looking and you're saying now, if the mark of a true Christian is that they're the light of the world, how do I know if a light is a light? I'm looking for light, right? If it's dark, I don't have anything to go on. I mean, this is just basic, simple logic. So the mark of power is godliness. And by godliness, what I mean is that it's a love for the things of God and a walk in the ways of God, which is simply practicing what you know about God, which is not knowing about Him, but is knowing Him. Because if you know Him, you'll look like Him. If you know Him, you'll act like Him. See how all of this just makes perfect sense? There's really no, it's not a mystery. It's not complicated. And the area of your life where you least look like him is the area of your life where you're least willing to allow him in. And so you don't want to talk about it. And you're just going to pretend like it's okay. And you're going to compromise your integrity and you're going to compromise your witness because that's what you want to do. And, and, and as soon as someone says something about it, you go, it's not wrong, that's wrong. And I'm not there. I'm here. And it's going to destroy you. And guess what? There's no light. There's no light there. The light's here. The darkness is there. The light's not in the middle. You see, here's the thing about light. Light is either on or it's off. You don't have like a switch in your house that's like light on and then put in the middle and it's like a candle. And then put it down here and it goes off. It doesn't go light, night light, dark. That's not how it works. It's on or it's off. It's light or it's dark. And you can stand there all you want to, but that ain't light. 
It's not light. And you know it. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. There you go. It's that simple. The question is not, well, hey, is so-and-so led by the Spirit? Is my spouse led by the Spirit? Are the people there? No, the question is, are you led by the Spirit? Are you led by the Spirit? Or are you led by your flesh? See, the beautiful thing that happens is when we come to the understanding that the Christian faith is not merely a set of doctrines to be accepted, but it's a power to be experienced. And my greatest fear as your shepherd is that you would swim in a sea of wonderful doctrine. That you would feel somehow as the beneficiary of all of my study and diligence and time. And that somehow my relationship with God would become your relationship with God. And that's not how it works. That's not how it works. I can teach you a lot about God. But I can't spend time with God for you. And if you're going to look like God, you're going to have to walk with Him. You're going to have to spend time with Him. And you're going to have to stop pretending like everything's okay. Because it's not. It's not okay. It's not okay. You can change. We can change. You have, listen to me, leave tonight with this last thing in your mind. Just think about the magnitude of what Peter says in the opening of the letter. You, if you are a child of God tonight, Possess everything that pertains to life and godliness. My goodness. Think about that. The magnitude of that statement. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. Look at what's on the table. Look at the offer. Remember the provision of God in salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.